Tech support tonight is being provided by the Academy, um, uh, which has a small staff team that haven't been furloughed during lockdown. So um, if you want to help, um, make a small donation, make a large donation, make any donation, and that'd be gratefully received. Thank you very much if uh, you do that. So moving on to just give a schematic outline of the Scottish government's uh, proposed uh, hate crime legislation, uh, the hate crime bill, as I'm going to call it for the rest of the evening. Um, the Scottish government is seeking to modernise, uh, consolidate and extend existing legislation on hate crime, which covers Scotland. Um, this, is, this is their express aim. And uh, the bill has been created to make it clear, um, inverted commas, that crimes motivated by hate will be treated more seriously than other such crimes. Um, and this is to send a message to victims, criminals and wider society. Um, it's structured in five parts. Uh, the first part is about aggravation. And uh, if you have an aggravating attitude towards the victim uh, from uh, generated by your own personal prejudice, um, then that will be seen as uh, an aggravating factor uh, in terms of uh, committing the crime. Um, and that's focused on particular groups, um, which I'll go into again in a little bit of time. The second part is around stirring up. Um, actual or as a likely consequence of your actions of or possessing inflammatory material which you are planning to communicate in some kind of way. And that second part is perhaps the most contentious or has attracted the most outcry. Uh, part three um, is the addition of further protected groups. Currently the protected groups are uh, around disability, race, religion, sexual orientation and transsexual identity to which there's a plan to add age and at a future date, sex as well. The fourth part is a very short part. It's about um, abolishing blasphemy as a, 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 an offence. And the fifth part is a kind of general um, part that's attached to a lot of different types of legislation, which allows ministers, uh, gives the ministers the ability, the flexibility to extend the powers of uh, legislation through the creation of regulations. And, and this is something that's been uh, done a number of times before. So it's fair to say that there's been a bit of a stooshy around this uh, uh, proposed legislation. Um, the, the Justice Secretary, Hamza Youssef, was pressed to adjust part two uh, just last week uh, uh, when, during the second reading of the bill. Um, so th there's a whole load of questions that are being raised by this and hopefully our panel will be able to kind of start us on a process of thinking about them. For me, it's really, it, 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 why now? Why is there a need for this now here in Scotland today? So moving on to our speakers, we're lucky in terms of speakers that we have this evening. Um, lucky not just to have them planned into the panel, but actually lucky to have them here at all. Uh, it's, it's been a bit of a technical um, uh, a triumph to get uh, people here. Um, so uh, I'm going to introduce them in the order that they will speak um, after they've spoken for around eight minutes each um, to outline their approach to the, uh, the issue. Um, then I'll throw the floor open to uh, the, the audience, you the audience, to participate, to ask questions. Um, that's fine, but a conversation is better, as I've indicated. What, you know, what do you think about this legislation uh, and what people have said? Um, I'll, I'll take around, around about five points, return to the panel allow them to answer direct questions um, and, and uh, flesh out what their thoughts are and then, and then go back out to the floor and so on. Um, so first of all, 
um, I'm going to introduce, uh, as I said, in the order they're going to speak. First of all, we have Jim Sillers, who uh, very quickly is an iconic Scottish politician on the thinking side of the left, I like to say. Um, an independence campaigner, a campaigner, and he became deputy leader of the SNP for a while. Secondly, we have Dr. Carlton Brick, who lectures in sociology in the School of Education and Social Sciences at the University of the West of Scotland. Thirdly, and my fingers are still crossed on this, we have Kate Cop Copstick, who's an actress, television presenter, writer, critic, and producer. However, Kate is dialing in from Kenya, um, and you can imagine that does present some challenges. So we haven't seen her yet, but um, fingers crossed, uh, she'll hopefully uh, find some signal and some electricity and, and a space to make a call from. And, and lastly, we have Lawrence Fox, who's an actor, singer, songwriter, guitarist, and free speech campaigner advocate. Um, and he's been very busy recently because he's just uh, initiated a new political party in the UK. So he's, he's very sought after, and we're lucky to have him here tonight to express his views. So without any further ado, I'm going to go to Jim Sillers. Um, and Jim, you have uh, around about eight minutes. Fine, thank, thanks very much. There's a couple of, um, one, one is a principle um, that I'd like to start with. I don't think that you can have absolute free speech. I think there comes in a democratic society where you have pluralism, big range of different points of view, then sometimes we actually have to exercise self-restraint. Um, I, I lived for a, and worked for a long time in the Arab Islamic world. And one of the things about Islam at the moment, I don't think is fully understood by many uh, in Europe and in America, is that Islam is still a young religion. I think in the Islamic calendar, this is round about 1444. And I noticed a reasonable time ago, a resurgence of Islamic belief. Now, I wouldn't go out of my way outside of private conversations to mount a severe critique on the Quran and the Hadith. For example, point out the relationship between Muhammad, Islam, and slavery. Do that privately with my friends. I don't think it's sensible for me to do that just now. It would be gratuitous, not particularly relevant in my view. So I don't come from the position of absolute free speech. But I do believe that if a government legislates on thought and speech, then clause one of any piece of legislation should say that it must be judged against the presumption of free speech. And that is signally missing in this particular piece of legislation. There is also a very important practical problem about this bill. And that is how it is examined in the Scottish Parliament. The Scottish Parliament is only a three day a week Parliament. It has been swamped by people saying, no, we object to this clause and that clause. I doubt whether this bill 
in the makeup of the Scottish Parliament's legislative procedures, it can be properly examined. And it needs to be properly examined. Part one is, in a sense, consolidation of present law. That's fine. Very few people have any objection to the consolidation. When we come to part two and part three, we're into you, something you may say is likely put up hatred, even if you had no intention of doing so whatsoever. I think that's taking the state into very dangerous territory. Also, extremely badly drafted. Uh, I think it's part five deals with, and Lawrence will be interested in this, part five deals with plays in a theatre. The actor can be prosecuted. Now, it, it doesn't necessarily follow that the words an actor uses in a role are actually the things that the actor believes in. So, you know, so we're placing actors in a very difficult position. The producer and director can, in fact, be prosecuted. The one that's missing is actually the author of the play. I, I don't know why the government has missed out the authors. Certainly in the Merchant of Venice, it would be very difficult to bring Shakespeare back into a Scottish court. So we've got bad legislation. I think also on the principle. How far do we want to allow the state to go into the realm of thought and speech? That's the measurement I have. And I prefer in a democratic society, a civilized society, that we should be expected to use our own judgment and restrain ourselves if we think that we are going to injure people's deep feelings or deep beliefs gratuitously. I prefer to do it that way rather than have the government tell me and everybody else, this is the way you should think. And if you don't think in a particular way, we will prosecute you even to the point of seven years in jail. So I think it's fundamentally wrong philosophically and stupid critically. Brilliant. Thanks, Jim. Um, very clear, very well thought through. Um, moving straight on to Carlton now, please. Hi there. Just to follow on uh, from what Jim's saying, I've got two, two main points, uh, both of which kind of speak to the bill in particular, but hopefully kind of try and expand uh, the discussion out a bit more broadly into look at the, the concept of hate crime uh, in and of, it, in of itself uh, as a thing. I also hope, again, my comments are kind of directed around particularly what I, what I perceive to be the kind of limited nature of some of the discussions in opposition to the bill. Because Simon, both Simon and Jim have outlined how uh, the bill is divided up in, into different sections and almost all if uh, kind of I think um, without exception the opposition to the bill and the, the kind of furore and the critique criticism of the bill 
have been centered around uh, part two of the bill, which is that which kind of contains the elements in terms of the attack on free speech, the attack on performance, uh, and the, uh, the attack on kind of uh, expression. However, this leaves uh, part one untouched, and Jim commented that uh, kind of that's a fairly uncontroversial part of the bill. Um, it's kind of fairly straightforward. I think it's actually where the detail of the bill is maintained, and it's where the devil lies within the bill. It's in the, the, the first part. So I want to say a little bit about that and expand on that, because in that sense, it's in part one of the bill where the attack on the notion of equality in the law takes place. So over the last couple of weeks, as, as, as Jim has said, the, the, the SNP have made some amendments to the bill, but these are predominantly around section two of the bill, part two of the bill, which are to do with uh, the need to prove intent if in terms of stirring up hatred. So as it stands at the moment, there is no requirement in the propositions of the bill to prove intent. However, I kind of think the focus on the second part of the bill in and of itself misses the point in the nature of kind of hate crime and hate crime legislation more generally, which I want to expand the discussion out to a discussion around the kind of the nature of the law and the nature of equality in the law, which I think this bill is a, a product of and, and, and kind of threatens. The second point I want to make is in relationship uh, to the one of the I think one of the dangers in perceiving the bill is that it, it becomes associated singly with a, a particular expression of SMP or Scottish nationalist authoritarianism. There is a, an element that of some of the critiques of the bill that see the bill as somehow very unScottish, as not part of a kind of Scottish egalitarian uh, tradition. And I kind of think this is somewhat of a, of a myth, and particularly in terms of looking at the way in which uh, criminal justice policy and the ways in which social policy have developed, particularly in the post-devolution era, post-1999 in Scotland, the, the kind of policy has developed in a very kind of authoritarian, very interventionist uh, way in terms of the kind of uh, the kind of individual relationships, the kind of personal nature of interventions, the banning of smoking in public, drinking regulations, the use of health as, as a means through which to intervene in, in people's lives, the, 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 the named person, uh, etc., and anti-smacking laws. So the, the kind of there's a there's a re very recent history in, in Scotland of legislation of the state intervening in the minutia or attempting to want to intervene in the minutia of, of individual life. So I see the bill as part of that process. And I suppose the, the, the question we have to raise is why is, why is this the trajectory? Why is this trajectory uh, happening in terms of kind of, there seems to be this desire or this need to intervene in the kind of the minutia of our, of our relations. And in a sense, I, I agree with, with Jim wholeheartedly that at its essence, the bill, the hate crime bill, as it's uh, formulated, is more than just a regulation of speech, more than just a form of censorship. 
it's 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 a it's a regulation or attempt to police and regulate what we think and in a sense this is kind of what the hate crime uh discussion is about because one of the particular criticisms of the hate crime bill as formulated by uh the smp is the problem over the kind of subjective nature of definitions of what hate is and the subjective nature over what harm is and in many senses that's kind of what hate crime is it reduces uh the kind of objective measure and the objective demand for uh for proof to to the subjective and this is where i see the real problem uh in, embedded in in this bill but also in the kind of the concept of hate crime more generally which is kind of predicated upon the kind of attack upon the notion of equality uh within the law which within the bill just to bang on about the bill again is kind of integral to the first section of the bill part one of the bill and it's in part one of the bill that kind of reinforces the shift from an objective uh measure of equality that the law treats us as equal to more subjective more relative measures of equality that the law through creating the notion of protected identities and protected characteristics allows for the state to use the law as a means to discriminate between uh subjects and individuals within society so in that sense i think the kind of real problem here is a general attack a general degradation of the concept of, of equality and if we look at the kind of history well certainly the recent history of the development of law certainly in in a british kind of european even american context this has been a steady erosion of the concept of equality in the law that has taken place certainly since the kind of 70s through to the 80s uh, and to the present day so this is kind of not a new development in in that sense i think there's a kind of danger that uh, you know uh, kind of justifiably so that we oh, we concentrate on the attacks on free speech however there is a there is a step before this which we need to engage with very very seriously and very very carefully and that is the attack on equality through the concept of protected identities and so the question or the problem that we have to deal with is that the way in which the state uses utilizes the notion of protected identities to intervene and undermine actual individual autonomy. Thanks very much Carlton. We're we're going to move on to Lawrence um uh, and who will wind up the speeches um and then I'm going to come out to the floor so get your questions and your points ready. Over to you Lawrence. Good evening. Um <clears throat> I don't need my 8 minutes. Thank you very much because then um, there's been some wonderful points made earlier especially by Carlton actually in terms of this idea of protected characteristics i think it goes uh, very much against the entire idea of a common law and b western civilization in general by creating a protected characteristic you or you create an a, someone who's you deny equality and you create someone who's oppressed and you create the oppressor and it seems to me that it's sort of the bill seems like symbolic legislation almost because uh, as far as i've got a uh, legal expert that i'm not 
that um, race can be an aggravating factor in crime already, yeah, as can, um, uh, you know, uh, there's also legislation protecting people uh, in disability, sexuality and trans identity from the Offences Act of 2009. And I just feel that, you know, where does it come from? What's, what, what's, the, what's the problem with just crime? Why, why does it have to be a hate crime? In the same way as what's the problem with just justice? Why does there have to be social justice? It's these, uh, why did these, what, why did these, uh, these very, very long established traditions need now to be modified in, in some way? So I'm asking myself to what purpose um, would you try and introduce this legislation other than to police people's thinking? And also to create a sense of innate guilt in people and to draw out their guilt. So as far as I can gather, the, um, the genesis of hate crime legislation is Holocaust denial, I would say. If I'm, I could be wrong, someone please correct me if I am. I'm no expert in these matters. And I don't think, and it's legal and illegal in various places around the world, but I would say that it's important that uh, people are allowed to deny the Holocaust and the ridiculous idea that the Holocaust didn't take place so that people with better ideas, more knowledge, can, in the public arena, publicly expose the fallacy of what they're saying. Um, and I suppose what happens if you, if, if you, if you create if you create a subjectivity to a crime, you're, you're already making a very difficult situation 500 times more difficult. It's more, it, one is looking to establish facts within, within criminal law, as far as I can gather, uh, not establish the feelings behind those facts, because where does one prevent, where, where does one end the intersections of it? Is everything therefore a hate crime? Can we create even more protected characteristics down to eye color and hair color? So, I ultimately uh, believe very much instinctively that freedom of speech is the best way forward. I believe that equality is the best way forward for us in, in the flawed systems that we live in, but the best and the freest systems that we live in on earth. And I suppose I'll just finish there because I'm, I'm most interested to hear what other people have to say. And so I can listen and, and, um, and grow my thinking than I would um, you know, expound upon it anymore. Brilliant. That, that's what I like. Um, uh, a short introduction from Lawrence. Uh, um, we will go back to the speakers um, uh, after we've had uh, the thoughts from the floor. Um, so please, please think about the questions you'd like to ask them. Uh, think about the points you'd like to make yourself and, and the questions that you would like to have answered in terms of um, can, can we have a, a does, does thinking uh, aggravate a crime? Does what is in your head, how would somebody prove what was in your head? Uh, if the, the actions are interpreted by somebody as subjectively hurtful, but you had no intent to do that, how do you prove yourself innocent? Is the, the burden of proof in terms of uh, undermining the accusation of hate is on the accused in this legislation. So that seems to undermine uh, fundamental sense of, of justice. But on, on the other side of that, ca can we just have free speech? Can anything be said? Well, what are the limits? What should the limits be? Can there be any limits that are justifiable to free speech? I've got a, a raft of hands uh, springing up in front of me and I'm going to start moving down. There's, there's a couple of people who will be um, potentially joining later that I'd like to bring in. 
um, but I'll stick to the order as I possibly can. So first at the top of the list there, there's somebody called Scott. Welcome, Scott. Scott, you're going to have to unmute. Yeah, right, you've unmuted. Cheers. Yes, thank, thank you. I, I wasn't expecting to, to be in so soon, but thank you very much. And this is very interesting. I'm, I'm quite um, taken by, by, by Lawrence not saying, or saying um, that he's not sure what the, the problem is. I and mean, I would say one has to look at Hamza Yusuf. The, a few weeks back, he was making this speech in the Scottish Parliament where he was rabidly anti-white. He, he is calling for the replacement of white people in any position of authority. This is in our own Scottish Parliament. And this is the man that is introducing the bill. This is his agenda. Far too many people are focusing on the detail of this bill, but we have to look at the bigger picture here. And that is, he wants to prevent any sort of criticism of immigration, of the growth of Islam, of what I would call the colonization of Scotland by Africans and Asians, because that is his agenda. And that is the agenda of this bill. So for me personally, I want to speak out against this. I want to say, no, I want to publicly declare that I am against any African and Asian immigration. I want a government, a Scottish government to, to encourage peacefully repatriation or removal of Asian and African people. Now I'm probably going to be called a racist, a hate criminal or something for saying this. But I think it's my free speech to advocate for this policy as a Scot, this is my home. This is the land of the Scots, this is the land for the Scots. And this bill will prevent me from doing that. They will put me in prison for doing this. And I'd like to know what other people think about this. Okay. Thank you very much. First person there. Um, second, we have Dennis Hayes. Hi, um, in response to um, Jim, um, I'm a free speech absolutist. And one thing you should say about people who say I'm not in favour of absolute free speech, they mean they're not in favour of free speech, because free speech is an absolute. And without it, we are really lost. But listening to the conversation, I was um, concerned about it's not just a Scottish issue. If you look at the debates in America, and if you look at really important for the discussion, the Supreme Court judgment in 2017, which is called Mattel versus Tam, which actually said hate speech is protected by the First Amendment. You have the right to speak hatred. It's part of your free speech defense. And when you discuss the things around that and read around that issue, what all the people point out is how Europe is out of step with America. I know there's a constitutional issue, but they say that the, the creeping censoring of hate speech, any sort of speech in Europe is a threat to America. And I think what we're facing in the Scottish hate crime bill is not just something that's important for Scotland, that's really important for the world. But it's not just an important thing for everybody here and what's gonna happen in Scotland, which it is, of course. It's actually almost the last bulwark. If this gets through the situation of criminalizing hate speech or any speech anybody finds offensive, it's gonna be, um, a real force that we cannot deal with. So 
the people who are opposing it here have got a really important job to do to make sure that hate speech is not um, this hate speech bill is not passed and to defend free speech as an absolute something that cannot be gainsaid you can't say i'm in favor of free speech but not this free speech you have to be in favor of free speech no ifs no buts thanks very much dennis um so stuart on you go yeah i mean the great thing about uh, free speech is that scott scott can talk talk utter garbage and i can say scott is talking utter garbage i mean that's that's the point um uh, 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 and you know that's 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 how you have a battle of ideas. People p put their ideas forward, and try and we, we try and convince one another. Hate crime actually began with Joseph Stalin uh, in 1936, uh, who was the first person to try and introduce this as a way to embarrass the West because the West wasn't very good on the issue of race. Uh, and they they tried to push it, but also push it because they believed that the state should be able to regulate. Uh, what people think. So it started with uh, one of the most grotesque dictators in history, uh, and it and it continues in Scotland <laughs> with modern one of the modern day uh, dictators, if you can really call it that. Um, the the point about the Scottish Parliament, I think, is that they're not against Hamza Yusuf isn't against whites, but they are against whiteness. So if you search the Scottish Parliament, you will actually find that they use the term whiteness and the issue of whiteness when they're discussing things. So it is starting to be, become part of the discussion. I think um, a few things that people touched on already, I think it's, it's useful to recognise that up till about 10 years ago in Scotland and the UK, in law, they didn't talk about hate crime. It was used as a kind of loose term, but it wasn't used legally because it was recognized to be essentially a polemical, very flimsy, not really legalistic concept, which it isn't. And the fact that it's now incorporated in the law the way it is shows how quickly law itself is becoming uh, infantilized in many respects, that they adopt essentially rhetorical, polemical concepts uh, and develop them in law. And I, I absolutely agree with what um, Carlton and Lawrence were saying about this protected characteristics concept. A protected characteristic should be understood as the new form of prejudice that the state has. It's a new caricature and label for entire groups of people. So for example, all gay men are a vulnerable group, apparently. Well, you go and ask gay men what they think about being told that they're a vulnerable group uh, uh, and see if you come away uh, 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 without a black eye or whatever else. It's incredibly patronizing, incredibly problematic and prejudice and should be understood as, uh, uh, as such. Just to make a final point, there's an aspect of this bill, which is, I mean, there's so many aspects of this bill which are uh, uh, jaw-droppingly uh, uh, degenerate. But this bill will criminalize uh, thought in the private sphere, in your home, okay? So if you have a dinner party and say something, or if you have a book in your house or uh, some other material in your house, which has always been protected previously, that could be a hate crime, right? Private speech in your own home. Uh, this really is, and it's, it's funny I say this about just about every bill they bring out, <laughs> but it's always true. 
this really is the most authoritarian piece of legislation that uh, has been developed anywhere uh, across the UK. Okay, that, that's informative. Thank you, Stuart. I'm going to go to Paul uh, Sapper next. Hi, thanks a lot. So uh, Stuart actually gave a really good answer to my question, but um, Lawrence pointed out that the idea of protected characteristics is not a part of our common law tradition. Um, and so I was just wondering if the speakers had any opinions on uh, where this idea has actually come from and how it is that the idea of hate crime and characteristics has become so mainstream that there's laws being introduced or being debated to be introduced all across the West. Thank you very much. Okay, thanks, Paul. So I'm going to go back to the, the panel. Um, uh, maybe Jim, can I bring you in first? Back up what Paul had just said. I um, actually see this piece of legislation in a wider context. I think Western civilization is having a nervous breakdown over thought and speech. Um, well, people are you know, chasing J.K. Rowling, for example. Now, would she be done under this, you know, this particular legislation? The answer is someone would make a complaint to the Crown Office and the Procurator Fiscal. And you know, this is, we're in, as I said earlier, we're in dangerous territory where the state is taking the right to define what we think as articulated in speech. Now, I think that's fundamentally, you know, the philosophical, uh, as far as I'm concerned, that is a no-go um, for me. I rather accepted Carlton's uh, criticism of those of us who are in the free to disagree campaign under part one. I had not quite thought about it the way that Carlton presented it in terms of an attack upon equality. Because if you look at the protected uh, people in this bill, and if you look at part five, where in fact the minister can add to the number of protected uh, people in future, with only what they call, um, you know, the positive, uh, laying down an order, not not in any way primary legislation. He's going to take the, the, the power to lay down an order. Actually, Hunter, I think, is on record as saying that he was thinking about misogyny as the next one, you know, to add yet. Um, I, I, all I'm trying to emphasize is that if the law starts to discriminate in me as an older person and you as somebody at 40, then equality before the law has actually disappeared. And we've got that at the moment out of the border uh, because of the killing of a policeman, where the argument is that the law should be particularly severe on the killing of emergency workers. But what's the difference between killing a fireman and killing a nurse or killing the porter inside a hospital? Where I think Carlton's put his finger on a fundamental problem with this legislation, that it departs 
from the egalitarian principle that is supposed to dictate to Scottish society. And just one final thing. Uh, <laughs> Scott, in my view, is 100% wrong. I don't think Hamza Yusuf intends to have an African and Islamic takeover of Scotland, but however disreputable I believe that opinion is, I think he has the right to say it without being prosecuted. Very quickly, I think that Jim, Jim and I think Stuart and some of the comments earlier have made the point about, you know, that there's no free speech without hate speech in a sense. You know, that's the, the way we, we measure it. So hate speech is integral to the idea of being able to speak freely. I just wanted to come very quickly back on, on Paul's point, because I think that's quite, uh, Paul's question, because I think that's kind of helps us kind of perhaps unpack this, this a bit more in the sense of the relationship uh, between the kind of protected, the nature of protected characteristics, protected identities, and, and the common law. In the sense where, whereas I see it, the kind of the developments of the law, the common law, is a, co a, a kind of codification or a formalization of those already existing relations within society between people. And that, that's the common element of it. But I think what has changed now is that there is a, the, the law is now used to express how uncommon the law is, how fragmented and how unshared that our relationships are. And this is where there's a kind of double-edged sword to the kind of the, the prejudice. So on the one hand, I agree with Stuart's point that the kind of incorporation of these kind of ideas of, of protected characteristics assume quite, you know, quite a, a kind of backward negative stereotype of some of these identities. But underpinning the implementation of the law is is a prejudice, the, the, the prejudice of the lawmakers, the, the prejudice of the elites, that those of us in society cannot get on with each other, that society is made up of individuals tearing each other's throats apart, you know, kind of throwing each other in the Clyde or under buses. So this is a kind of uh, a, a kind of double prejudice that is expressed here. And I think the kind of this shift from the law as being the codification of a common culture is being replaced by the idea of the law as a way to create a, a, a common culture. So we've shifted from the rule of law to rule by law, where the kind of law now becomes the vehicle through which particular elites try to uh, kind of morally engineer or implant values artificially or externally on society, which can only lead, and this is one of the ironies, I think, Kind of, it leads to further polarization uh, and, and further fragmentation. I think Stuart made a really good point about um, this need, uh, the, this desire to like gather all gay men or, or, or all any sort of minority group, uh, Black Asian ethnic minority or LGBTQ plus and the rest of the alphabet into one common opinion. Uh, and, in, and and what it does is it's an, it's an extreme assault, in my view, on individualism. And, uh, you know, individualism ultimately is the way that we communicate, and language is the way that we communicate with each other. 
in uh, as a substitute for knives and guns and battle i think it's uh, to create these these protected characteristics is to is, is to again as part of this critical race theory idea create the idea of the oppressor and the oppressed and um it, it, it's 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 very dangerous and because it's extremely patronizing to people generally so you should be able to say i'm scottish or I'm English, or I'm British, and that that then precludes your um, your skin colour, your sexual orientation, and all of this sort of thing. Uh, to the point where I actually have a a black albino friend who is a gay Brexiteer, and uh, everyone hates him, <laughs> which is um, except me, absolutely. <laughs> um, and um, I suppose. What I feel is that also this law, the, the, these laws are coming in reaction often to, to, a, to a lot of the narratives that were fed in the media. And I feel the media have a responsibility to, um, to act forward rather than uh, reportage our, the, the way through our lives. And obviously I, I don't agree with Scott because I don't believe that the idea is, is a racial supremacist idea particularly. But what I do believe it's doing is it's it's targeting the most vulnerable in society. So it's saying, <clears throat> you know, because you are a minority, well, you are you are therefore you're therefore oppressed, and that all that's ever going to do is is create more division and, and possibly actually create some some more active ideas of racism. So um, yeah, I just think the whole idea of of free speech and free expression is that. Everyone gets to talk, and the good ideas win. That's where I'm at. That, that, that's nice, that, that, that everyone gets to talk and the good ideas win, as I would like it. Um, but I suppose I'm, I'm going to come on to uh, Diane now. Um, but just, I suppose, uh, should there be any, just for people to consider, sh so what, should there be any controls on speech? You know, are, are, is there anything that should be um, maybe controlled that, that, that can be hurtful, or is hurtful okay? Right, uh, Diane, you don't have to answer that, but we'll, we'll, we'll come on to the others next. Go for it. Okay, so I just like to offer a little bit of a different slant and I'll approach this from an educational point of view. So I ran a school in Los Angeles and then a school here in Aberdeen. And the education we implemented in both schools included critical thinking and through first principle thinking, which was a deconstruction to get to the truth of a thing. And the students were trained in perspective taking, they undertook difficult projects whereby they learned to fail and regroup and generally be open to new situations. So they created what was called a malleable self, which contrasted with this with a solid self, which is sort of inflexible and sticks to one perspective and often looks to pull other people into a clique to validate their opinions. So it's interesting now to talk to the students who are at our secondary school here in Aberdeen to listen to what they say, because a lot of them have gone on to university. Um, so what they're finding, they're quite surprised and shocked often because what they're finding is that many of the fellow students are actively looking to be divisive. You know, they're looking to create an us and them. And they're often highly sensitive. They are very solid and inflexible and are often incapable of seeing things from a different perspective. So, but 
you know, I don't think the, the students are to blame. They're not taught critical thinking skills and they're not exposed to creating a malleable self. And it seems until we address how our young people are provided with an educational environment whereby free and open discussion is the norm, we're, we're probably fighting an uphill battle. Okay, thank you. How, how okay, right, continue how, and then we'll go back to Mev. Sorry, Mev. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, no, it's splitting people into categories right at the gate. So you have like people in these groups rather than seeing kind of society as a whole. So um, I forget who, who mentioned the idea of, like this is going to be an issue of there's going to be a the state's trying to impose a common culture. I almost see it as the state is like putting people into categories and preventing kind of this open space where ideas are just shared between individuals, between groups, and that's how society progresses. So it's like very worrying to see that people would immediately almost be like segregated into spaces almost in this like medieval fashion. Okay, right. Thank, thanks for that. Right, back to Mev, and then uh, Mo's going to come in after that. Hi, thanks for that. Um, well, uh, I mean, I've worked in the home sector for 18 years. Um, one of the things I tend to do is take a fairly sort of street-level perspective of these things and ask obvious questions, is it going to work? And to me, there's absolutely no chance it's going to work, so why bother? Um, when I look at people's behaviour, um, I mean, I can think of examples where uh, infants have gently challenged their grandparents about their choice of language, and the grandparents have taken on board and thought would be right. Um, this is an appropriate opportunity for weights. Um, and if you look at what this legislation is trying to do, you're looking at what, you know, uh, the possibility of criminal record in prison sentence. Now, on that, on, you know, that sort of argument, is that more likely to entrench attitudes and hate or change attitudes? My experience would be more likely to entrench those attitudes. So, I mean, to me, this is just a classic example of politicians who sit in an ivory tower who don't understand the society that they govern or would wish to govern, uh, coming up with legislation that they think will make a difference and there's absolutely no chance it will. Um, you know, we've had drugs illegal for 50 years, that's made me different. We've had alcohol abuse for centuries, you know, and they just go through all the various other social problems we're grappling with, you know, homelessness, obviously. Um, that's been a problem for decades, perhaps longer, you know. Um, politicians just don't seem to be able to come up with solutions to these problems. And I think it's largely because they simply don't understand the problem. And until we get politicians to do, we're going nowhere as a suspect. We're not going to take on the division. And this is just a waste of time. So I'd be very interested in the panel's views, if it, you know, how they think this will change society, if at all. Thanks, Mev. I'm going to go to Mo, then Anna, and then I'm going to go back to the, the panel. Okay, so Mo, then Anna. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I just would like to say I can't uh, disagree with what Scott said uh, strongly enough. Um, this idea of essentializing race through identity politics has become incredibly divisive in our society. And what really concerns me, I mean, um, uh, Carlton made the uh, point earlier about equality before the law. That's a fundamental principle of liberalism is that we are all equal in our humanity and that we are equal before the law. And having lived in a country um, that did discriminate um, along racial lines, I lived in uh, South Africa, the idea that you can essentialize um, race, whether you're, uh, you know, whether you're mixed race, whether you're mixed heritage, um, all of these things is incredibly difficult to do. And my, my problem with this, um, with this legislation 
is that what it actually does, it kind of, it, it creates this kind of creeping juridification of race um, so that we actually kind of legitimize these identity politics uh, categories that we're, we're all, all, all sort of struggling with in society. And um, to me, that, that means that prejudice then becomes something um, that becomes reinforced by, by the legislation itself. So uh, contrary to it being a, a kind of kind piece of legislation that attempts to legislate against uh, prejudice, it actually reinforces it by reinforcing these kind of identities that, um, let's face it, are pretty, pretty fluid. Um, so that was just the point I wanted to make. Thank you. Thanks, Mo. So Anna, and then back to the panel quickly. Excellent. I just want to quickly say something about the protected characteristic. Um, I haven't read the bill that you're discussing, but um, obviously we have our own protected characteristics in uh, England and Wales, the Equality Act 2010. There are nine protected characteristics in that act. And if you look at um, hate crime policing, which is not technically legislated, but we do have policies where the police use what are called monitored strands, um, which are derived protected characteristics, and actually historically they go back to before the Equality Act. The interesting thing about these monitored strands and protected characteristics is that, and this gets lost I think in some of these discussions, is that they're quite universal from the point of view of the English language. So let's take, for example, the protected characteristic and monitored strand of race. Uh, there is no specific delineation in legislation or policy as to which race we're speaking about. Mm. And if every citizen or resident of the United Kingdom has a race, then universally every resident and citizen is protected. So the problem that we have, and now there are some exceptions to this universalism, if we speak, for example, about um, maternity in the Equality Act or disability, because we could argue that some residents or citizens are disabled, whereas others aren't. Uh, and similarly, with monitoring um, hate crime, uh, policing policy talks about transgenderism, which we don't find in the Equality Act. And we can say some people are transgender, others aren't, although it's becoming a little bit difficult with self-ID to distinguish between uh, who is and who isn't. Uh, that's another issue. Um, but if we look at, for example, um, as I said, race, where all of us have a race, or sex, all of us have a sex, or religion, which includes, by the way, non-belief or atheism, so we all have a religion or a non-religion, or a sexual orientation, which just as much includes um, straight or heterosexual orientation as it does technically homosexual orientation, then the question becomes, why in the minds of the public does the word race imply BAME, for example. We, we had someone earlier, I think it was Stuart, talking about homosexuals or gays and saying, you know, the, the law groups these people into a group and then vulnerable, renders them vulnerable and marginalized and this is patronizing. And I would agree with that, but I would say that's not the law's job, actually, that is doing that. The law isn't doing that. Legislation isn't doing that because sexual orientation is a universal category. What is happening is in the minds of the public sexual orientation transcends as a marginal or minority sexual orientation, similarly with race and similarly with religion. And any Christian will tell you that if, if they try to push uh, or report um, an anti-Christian hate crime, of which there are many in the press every day, 
um, you know, Owen Jones will call Christians bigots without, without, you know, without even a flutter of an eyelid, you know, but he's very, very keen to label Islamophobes wherever he perceives hostility or, or dislike of, of anything to do with Islam. So we see that there's a discrimination in culture and in the media as to how we understand religion. But if you look at the language of the law, religion is a universal category to which even about is, how does it get to the point where the public thinks sexual orientation means gay or race means anybody who isn't ostensibly white, whatever that means, when actually the law protects everybody the same way equally, except possibly for disabled and transgender and, and, and pregnant mothers. And, and this is an aspect of the protected characteristic that I don't hear addressed, uh, but it has been raised, for example, by victims of grooming gangs who believe that they have been the victims of racial assault, but their whiteness precludes that from being seriously considered culturally and in society at large because they're protected characters. That's, that's just all I wanted to say, thank you. Okay, brilliant. We're gonna just go to the panel now just for their thoughts on what's been said in the last few minutes. And then I'm gonna to go to a particular person um, who's just joined us. So first of all, to the panel, do um, anybody in the panel want to comment? You can pass if you want to. I mean, you asked Simon about, <clears throat> and one earlier, said that they were absolutists in terms of and you know in philosophical terms yeah most of us would agree that is the case and then you said you know are there any controls to stop people being you know hurt and i i i think we've got to look at the world as it practically is. I said earlier, I, I worked in the Arab Islamic world. And I think you've got to, when choosing to lodge a critique, as is going to happen one day with the Islamic religion in the UK, as it happened after the Enlightenment uh, with the Christian religion. Uh, Time, I don't think, is now, because people who are Muslim and come to a non-Muslim country have a problem, I think, it's important for us to understand, because they're told that the Quran isn't just a religion, it is, in fact, a way of life. And at the extreme end, the Al-Qaeda end, they're saying to them that man-made law is seriously deficient in relation to the Koran. Now, at the moment, if we launched the kind of critique on the Koran that my generation launched on the Bible and Christianity, I think it would not only be hurtful, but extremely damaging to the ability of the Muslim community to assimilate or integrate whatever word you want to choose into our society and deal with this fairly fundamental contradiction. So yes, there, there are controls, but as I said earlier, these have to be personal controls where you don't gratuitously 
saying something that can cause damage to your community and society. Now, the next thing I want to say, I want to tell you a story. I grew up in the West of Scotland, where Catholic, the Protestant, was a normal fact of life. Rangers versus Celtic, a normal fact of life. Bitterness and sectarianism. I was never a dancer, but my brother would go to the dancing with his pals on a Saturday night, picked up a girl, or a girl said, ladies' choice. Once they started dancing, the question was, are you a Catholic or are you a Protestant? But the wrong answer, that was the end of any potential relationship. During my lifetime, things have improved enormously. We still have sectarianism in Scotland between the Protestant and the Catholic, the Rangers and the Celtic. But it has shrunk over the years. And when the Scottish government decided that it hadn't shrunk enough, it produced a special legis piece of legislation on football supporters. Because anybody who's ever been at a Rangers Celtic game uh, would be astonished at the vitriol in the various songs that are in fact sung. So the Scottish government, oh, this is a dreadful stain on Scottish society. We have to legislate to prevent it. Well, they finally had to repeal the bill because as the Glasgow Herald said to them, you cannot legislate sectarianism Away. It is a matter of time, debate, discussion. I was 19. I would have been asked how many of my friends were Catholic, and I'd have been able to tell you. I asked my daughter, and she was 19, how many of her friends were Catholic. She looked at me as if I was a lunatic. I mean, this is totally irrelevant. And the point I'm trying to make in a sense, is the point that Lawrence made. You make progress in society by having free debate, discussion, taking on prejudiced opinion, knocking it down, or sometimes accepting that there is a fair point in it. And I think if you look at sectarianism in Scottish society, it shows that legislation will fail, whereas debate, discussion and progress in a society will in fact succeed. And I think the fundamental error being made in this legislation is to believe that they can determine how we think and how we speak and say certain thoughts and certain speech is unlawful. That's why I regard it not only philosophically as fundamentally flawed, but also stupid as well. Jim, I keep saying brilliant after every time you speak, but um, that really was brilliant. <laughs> Thanks. Um, okay, to Carlton, Lawrence, and then uh, someone who's just joined us. Yes, uh, just very, very quickly. I'd just like to come back um, very quickly on the uh, protected characteristic question that was raised. Um, if protected characteristics are, are universal, it, it, it 
begs the question, well, why have them in the legislation, in the law <coughs> to begin with? I think the problem with the protected characteristic category is that it, it, it kind of produces a whole set of other protected characteristics in the sense that it becomes the, the point of which the law begins to discern and differentiate between uh, individuals in society. And so kind of, I think that, and so basically the state becomes the arbiter of, of identity. The state becomes the uh, arbiter of how you should be treated under the law as to whether you fit or are, are categorized by uh, this, by these protected characteristics. And moreover, if you turn that the other way around, that your identity then becomes symbolic or becomes kind of valorized through your victimhood. So you kind of the it's it's it, it, I, I find it to be a kind of completely regressive uh, step in the sense that my subject I think Lawrence talked about this this kind of we have subjectivities being created and codified through their relationship not only with the state but with being a victim and to me I that's that's very very problematic and that's kind of for me that's the essence of the problem with the notion of the protected characteristic. Please forgive me for not getting the names right. I think it was Diane who um, was talking about sensitivity within students. And um, I think that's very interesting as an idea because students seem to become consumers, don't they? And, and you know, as a consumer, you want to feel that you consume something that makes you feel comfortable and happy and you know you paid for it and you got something lovely which is totally against uh, free inquiry and academic rigor and um to that end i think you know th this pursuance that we go down of the, of the fact that the, the right to be protected from offense trumps the right to offend you know once, once one weighs it up you go no i think actually much more damage is done by people denying the right to be offended than it is by the right to offend. And I'd also say that I understand where students are coming from because students are looking for something to campaign for, something to believe in. It's the, it's the point of being young. You know, I, I, when I was younger and less hard, smacked in the face by life, I was very keen to believe, you know, to campaign after something. And this idea of progressivism is very addictive to them. They think, Right, yeah, you know, uh, we're trying to make the world a better place. But unfortunately, as, as with all of this very, very dangerous ideology, is it, 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 in the same way that um, it, 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 it achieves the exact thing, the exact opposite of what it aims to do, in the same way as uh, affirmative action uh, programs in America have, have, have done more damage to the black community possibly than anything else one could argue for. And um, then to go on to what Anna said, in terms of uh, Muslim grooming gangs and things like this, we're very scared to have a conversation about the realities of the fact that when, you know, overwhelmingly the, the girls that are the victims, of which there are a huge number, are white working class girls, and they're, and they're, they're taken on culturally uh, because they are dirty and disposable. You know, and, and that's a very, it's a very, very difficult thing to get one's head around. So what I would say about protected characteristics in, in, any, in any way, in any idea is let's get rid of them and let's focus on what, what we believe in generally is a, 
as Britons or as, you know, however one wishes to describe ourselves within the broader concept of nation and state, to say, let, let's rid ourselves of this concept of, of protected characteristics, race, sexuality and everything else. And let's find what unifies us. And the only way we can find what unifies us is through the freedom and the right and, the, and actually legislative freedom like they have in America in their First Amendment to express oneself. And to not believe, you know, the, the, the other sort of thing that comes into my head all the time is when you come across this sort of woke ideology that uh, bothers me so much, they're constantly going on about how wonderful we all are, how we're all very good people. But it might be an interesting idea to think we're not all wonderful people. And that requires a great deal of work and personal reflection and solid relationship with others. So I think that's a bit rambly, but that's my response. <laughs> Rambling is good. Uh, thanks, Lawrence. I, I just want to take the opportunity at this moment, uh, moment to welcome John Cleese to the debate. Uh, John has uh, joined us from America, I think, where he is. There he is. And um, we're very pleased to have you here. Welcome to the Scotland Salon, John. Um, uh, we're having a lively discussion here. I think you picked up a bit about that. But I suppose from your experience and, and, and your output over the, the years that I've followed, did, how do you perceive yourself? I mean, today you might be perceived as hateful in terms of some of the, the stuff that you, you've produced uh, and, and certainly it has been questioned and, and, and highlighted for potential bans in this country. I mean, I, I remember um, crossing a picket line of, of Christians to try and see the life of Brian when I was a child and well, my, well, not quite a child, a little bit, a young person. And, but it seems today that blasphemy is the only thing that you can actually do these days. Everything else, you can, nobody else you can offend. I was finding some of the arguments very interesting, but this is really very technical what you guys are talking about. I think what bothers me most is I wrote a couple of, I co-wrote a couple of books many years ago. I think one was in the early 80s and the other was early 90s with a psychiatrist called Robin Skinner. And I think... Um, he was a very, uh, very clever and, and, and uh, perceptive man. And he said something to me, which I've never forgotten. He said, if, uh, if someone can't control their feelings, then they have to control other people's behavior. And I think there's a, 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 a great deal of, of wisdom in that. I was reading this morning, uh, there was a small incident uh, when Essex won the county championship. They did what a lot of young fellas do when they get excited, they started splashing uh, beer about. And one of the team uh, got some beer on him and he was a Muslim. And immediately people were condemning uh, the Essex team for uh, not having anticipated this particular thing when people started to celebrate. And, and I remember thinking to myself, well, is it really worth making a fuss about? I mean, if this young Muslim chap, he must have been with friends before, could he not also have anticipated what was going to happen? So instead of having a sort of full-blooded, silly, slightly juvenile celebration, um, the, it's, it's developed into a racial incident because somebody got some beer on him. Now, that may be very, very important in the Islamic uh, faith. Uh, you know, alcohol's bad, but I would have thought getting some on you by accident was not such a terrible thing. But it means that everyone else has got to control their behavior 
if a particular person is super sensitive about something. And uh, I saw this in my own growing up because my mother uh, just couldn't cope with many, many things. And this meant that my father was constantly doing things uh, that he had to do because she couldn't cope if he uh, did, did uh, something that she couldn't cope with. And so by weakness, she controlled him all the time. So I, I kind of feel there needs to be a, a level of sensitivity that is to do with sort of what ordinary people feel, not what is felt by people who are particularly sensitive. Does that make any sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, it, it begins to, I mean, the, I suppose the, the did, 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 when, I mean, I'm thinking back to 40,000 when you're doing the, 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 the Germans episode, um, that that was that has been highlighted in this country recently around um, uh, it being hateful and and one sheriff um, uh, said that context um, is is irrelevant. The context is, is irrelevant. So the fact that you're lampooning Nazis is irrelevant because you were, you know, literally becoming a Nazi in that kind of situation. So it it, it seems. I mean, what kind of fetter would that place on the creative? Um, uh, the, the, the creative juices, the, the, the creative process, if you have to start thinking everything through three or four times before you say them. Well, it's disastrous to the creative process because the creative process above everything else is, is a matter of spontaneity. I think Lawrence would agree with that, right? I mean, if you're going to come up with something that's really interesting artistically, it's going to come out of you, you're, you're unconscious. And if you're having to what's the word, edit everything you say before you say it, then nothing uh, is going to happen uh, creatively. And also uh, things that are rather lovely and funny in ordinary conversation, they're not going to happen either because everybody's um, thinking, oh, somebody might offend, you know, and, and you don't know what you're doing. I got attacked recently because I called somebody um, what was the word? Jolly. I called them jolly because they had what I call a jolly personality. And uh, now I was told, no, no, you can't say jolly now because that means fat. So, so I looked it up in the dictionary because it doesn't mean fat at all, but to a small number of people it means fat and therefore they're trying to control the way I speak because they have a little private rule amongst themselves that it has a completely different meaning from one that I've grown up with. Uh, and this is a form of oversensitivity and I think some of it is because people who are trying to feel that they are very good people um, almost sit around waiting to be offended so that they can say, oh, I've, I've, I've been offended. Sorry, everyone, but that's it. I've been offended. And this person who offended me is a very bad person. I mean, it's actually very silly. Yeah. And the stuff about the major was that he used the N word, which was not as offensive then as it is now. But the point was we were making fun of him. There's two ways of attacking somebody with humor. One is a sort of frontal attack and calling them silly or stupid or whatever is 
can be slightly wittier than that. And the other is to put words in their mouth that you want to discredit and make it clear that the person who is saying those words is not someone to be taken seriously. And obviously we were making fun of the fact that dear old Major was back in the 1930s and we were therefore discrediting the words that come out of his mouth. But those of you who can remember till death do us part will recall that that's exactly what Alf Garnett used to do. You know, yeah. Johnny Spate, the writer, would put into Alf's mouth words that he thought were funny because they were ridiculous. And then a small number of people said, thank God these things are being said at last. I mean, you simply cannot legislate for all these different kinds of, of attitudes. And I think we've got to take seriously the thought that we, 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 people have got to become a little more stoical and a little less easily upset because we don't want to run society according to the sensitivities of the people who are most easily upset, you know? It would okay, be- We'll like, have to move on uh, hmm? fairly soon. We'll have to move on fairly soon, John. I've got an awful lot of people that want to speak. Yeah, was, was, there some, was there something else you wanted to tell us I'm before you go? Listen for a bit, if I may, I'm interested. All right. Okay. That's that's that's. You're welcome to. You're welcome to. Right. So I'm I'm going to move on to uh, Joanna Williams now, please. Hi. Thank you. Um, so I'm sure people probably know that the Law Commission in England and Wales has just produced its uh, guidance for review of hate speech legislation in England, all 544 pages of it, and I've been having a read through that today, and it, it draws heavily. I think there's some very very clear parallels with the Scottish legislation as well. Um, really they're both coming from the same hymn sheet and what's really obvious to me I think that stands out from this um, law commission review is just the sheer contempt for people that seems to just drip off every single page the view of people is that we are all just scum <laughs> essentially for want of a better word that we are racist sexist homophobic transphobic um, that without the law cracking down and monitoring everything we do, that just these kind of outrageous instincts that people have buried away inside them will be unleashed. And I, I kind of, being quite cynical, I kind of half expected that. What surprised me from, uh, that seems to come across from the legislation, is also the contempt for the people that are supposed to be being protected here as well. So um, the groups who are considered to be um, kind of falling under the protected characteristics are discussed as if they're kind of incredibly psychologically weak, um, you know, that they just hear one offensive word and they're going to melt and have some kind of trauma. But also, um, and this is made quite explicit, that in certain communities, there's an anger boiling up under the surface um, and that if certain communities are offended, then they may not be able to be held responsible for their own actions. The anger that might be unleashed um, needs to be curtailed. And, you know, that's, a, people already said, a kind of very patronizing way to talk about people. It's also an incredibly insulting, and I would argue actually quite a racist way to talk about certain communities. Um, the, it also comes across quite explicitly the role of the law in sending a message, um, this idea that society should be uh, celebrating diversity, should be inclusive, and that the law needs to reflect that and the law needs to promote these values very explicitly. 
And it's quite a, a very strange understanding of the role of the law to send social messages about how society should be right now. So I thought that was very, very interesting. I've got one final quick question just to end with. Um, from my own research, looking at different countries around the world, it seems as if the beginnings of lots of this hate legislation really took off in the kind of mid 1960s, um, early 1970s, pretty much with hate speech in relation to race in, in quite a lot of countries around the world seemed to, to go in that direction at the same time. So I'm just wondering what was it about that time, about the kind of mid to mid 60s to mid 70s, where it seems almost like a view of people um, or a distance between political and legal elites. Something shifted, it seems, around that time. And I'm just wondering if the panel had any views on, on why it was at that point in time that this really began to take off. Hi. Hi, everyone. Hi, Laurie. Hi. I just think we are sort of heading down the path of a police state with this legislation. If you were to say something which someone took offence at reported you to the police, in the first instance, the police are going to be the arbiters here. They're the ones who are going to decide whether it is a hate crime or not. They're the ones who are going to decide whether this needs to be taken to the procurator fiscal for prosecution. And I just think we're heading down a very dangerous road there. And I just maybe wondered what other people thought about that, if, if they maybe feel the same. Because ultimately, who decides whether it's a hate crime or not? It is very, very subjective. You're absolutely right. We'll, we'll take that to the panel in terms of what the, 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 the difficult position it puts the police in, in terms yeah. of deciding. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. okay. Thank you. No problem. Right. So, Monica. I'm glad you had John Cleese on because um, the point I wanted to make was about the role of comedy and satire in society. Um, it seems to me that people who. It seems to me that this legislation is about it comes from a, a very dark place. So normally satire, comedy, humor, debate is the, the, the venue for um, debating and discussing areas where people don't agree. But um, it seems like this is, a, this is an opportunity to just comes from people who have a very serious mindset. Um, normally, um, people debate things like this with a sense of humor, with a sensitivity, um, and they don't come from negative emotions. And I can't help thinking that when legislation like this comes uh, to be, it's, it's coming from a place of fear, um, fear of uprising, fear of problems from the minorities, um, and, and, it, and it worries me that, uh, and also comedy has become very left-wing on the BBC, for example. Um, so it, it also, always when, when people um, get very serious about these things, there is, there is a lack of sense of humor. Um, we've only got to look at people like Hitler, for example, where they are, have an inability to laugh at themselves. Uh, and that worries me a lot. So that's all I wanted to say, really. 
Okay, we're going to go to Ewan next, and then um, we're going to try Jenny again. Thanks, uh, Simon. I appreciate you bringing me in there. Um, my uh, eight-year-old son uh, was astounded when he, he, he spotted Basil Fawlty, um coming on the, the Zoom call there. Um, no, I was not. <laughs> oh, no, he was not, apparently. Um, <laughs> that's what he says. Um, Thank you for, for the contributions tonight. I'm, I'm really sorry uh, that I, uh, I missed... Um, uh, Jim's contribution, um, my uh, fellow Scottish independent supporting Brexiteer, um, who's always got a, a few coherent comments to make, especially on on, on this kind of thing. Um, the thing that really worries me about this is it, it seems to be part of a, a wider uh, and deeply sinister lurch by the Scottish government to uh, increasingly bureaucratic and, and authoritarian um, legislation that is that is fundamentally inconsistent with the trajectory of Scottish society as a whole. I'll explain what I mean by that in just a minute, but um, what what concerns me is it, it, it's, it also seems to be embedded in the, in the almost vice-like grip that the SNP currently has on Scottish politics. I think when you look at things like the Offensive Behaviour at Football Act, the Named Person Clause that was in the Children and Young People's Act, the smacking ban, uh, even some uh, consider uh, the uh, same-sex uh, legislation um, also as part of that. But but really, this for me is, is the most lamentable and concerning uh, piece of legislation I've ever seen uh, emerging out of um, Holyrood. And, and I'm absolutely in agreement with uh, with Stuart waiting on that. Um, I think the, 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 the point that I would want to raise, uh, and this relates in part to the, 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 the fact that I think that, the, personally, I think the SNP might have overstepped the mark here. And that's actually going to be my question for, for uh, the panel, and particularly Jim, who uh, obviously is still, still a member of the SNP, um, how I'll, I'll never work that out, but um, the the fact that there's been, you know, the 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 number of of responses in the consultation quite surprises me because the only thing that's ever come as close to to to, to this was the was the, the the bill on same sex marriage in 2013. There were over 14,000, sorry, 1,400 responses um, to that consultation. To this, there were over 2,000. Um, so I have I, I'm, I'm very uncertain if this is actually going to make it make it through. The other thing is that um, free to disagree did uh, Jamie did some interesting polling for free to disagree recently, and I, I wrote on this in my column recently about the fact that um, actually 46% of SNP councillors who responded to that uh, consultation uh, admitted that they, uh, they uh, sorry, only 46% uh, actually said that they supported the bill. Less than half of SNP elected councillors who responded said that they supported this. And an equal number, 46%, also said that they either didn't support the bill or were very unsure about uh, the content of the bill. So I suppose my question is, as the SNP, continues to go down this route, this trajectory that I think is fundamentally out of sync with Scottish society, is this the point at which 
they have finally overstepped the mark. And as I say, I would love to hear the, the panel's thoughts on that, but particularly Jim. Uh, so I'm going to go back to the panel. So um, uh, should we should we try uh, Jim now? Because Jim, there's a couple of direct questions to you there. Yeah, um, I'm still in the SNP despite the present leadership. Um, internally in the party, I think things are very bad. Um, and I really basically hope for better days, but I'm on the outer fringe uh, of the SNP. Um, so, you know, my comments are always taken as, or he would say that anyway. So I've been in it since 1980 and I have, I've been invited to resign by some people. I have no intention of doing so. I just hope for better days. Now, has it overstepped the mark on this? I think as far as Civic Scotland is concerned, the answer is yes, and they will have to retreat from where they started with this bill, because it should be recognised by everybody that it's not just people like me and others who are opposed to it. Police don't like it. Lawyers don't like it. Even the judges have come out and said, don't like it. So the people who would actually have to implement it, interpret these very subjective terms, uh, they don't want anything to do with it and hope, basically I suspect, that it will in fact go away. Um, and my, my concern is the, there doesn't seem to be a realisation in the government of the practical problems that are going to arise. Now, I'll give you an example from the sort of present English Scotland bit of needle there. He's a very good writer, right-wing writer, um, writes for The Telegraph and The Spectator. Um, he had an article in The Telegraph which was the most insulting to Scott I've read for a considerable period of time. More or less saying, if you lot, you're so stupid and so ineffective and so you know, lacking in ability, if you get your independence and you'll just be like, and he named a couple of the worst countries governed in the world at the present time. Now, the bill actually contains protected people on nationality and the Telegraph is published in Scotland. So if this legislation went through and bear in mind we're likely to get a referendum sometime, the debate will be quite bitter and there's signs of bitterness south of the borders, English people wondering what the hell you want to go away from us for, you know, and you're deficient and that, that's come through. Well, Douglas Murray would be up for prosecution. Now, I, I don't want Douglas Murray to be prosecuted. And I got to say to Douglas Murray, well, actually, Douglas, I'm as clever as you are, and the rest of my folk up here are just as clever as you folk down south. Uh, but you've got an opinion about us, hunky-dory, that's it, doesn't worry us anyway whatsoever, and you just laugh it off. But this is the practicality that will arise from 
this bill if it becomes an act. And that's that's the practicality. But I've got a, a wider and deeper concern. We live in a world where the Western hegemony has ended. It lasted almost 400 years with economic power, diplomatic power, military power over other countries. When I was a boy, for example, if you wanted to say something was really bad, you said it was in a worse state than China, which was almost true at that time. Well, that period of world history is over. It's going to be the Asia-Pacific or the Indo-Pacific region of the world which is going to crash ahead. And I don't think you find in those Asian Indo-Pacific countries anything like the intellectual tangle that we are in in the West. And earlier, I think, we're having a nervous breakdown over thought. But the long-term damage is, in my view, quite profound because if you've got a part of the world which is crashing ahead, as it is, and is going to become the dominant part of the world, in order to have a better balance in that world, then the West has got to assert its position in the global situation. But if we destroy the intellectual integrity of our Western societies, then we don't progress and we don't even stagnate. We will, in fact, regress. And we will play a much more minor part in the world that's developing over the next yes. 50 to 100 years. Yes. So this, this particular piece of legislation might be looked at only in Scottish context, but I think it speaks to a much wider problem in Western civilization. And that's one of the anxieties I have about it. Okay. Up, this is the last thing I say tonight. One of the great tragedies is we've had a very good discussion tonight. You're, examining the nuances and all the rest of it. That cannot take place. This legislation is going to be discussed. We don't have long discussions in the Scottish Parliament. Backbenchers speak for four minutes. Ministers speak for eight minutes. Now, how do you expect those people to dissect this bill with all its profound implications and a system like that. I am very worried and very depressed about it. Thanks, Jim. Carlton, how do you what do you think about what Jim was just saying there in terms of Western civilization? Um blimey. Start off with small <laughs> topics, why don't we? Western <laughs> civilization. Yeah, well, I, I kind of uh, uh, agree uh with uh with, with Jim's point there. I kind of I'd much can I talk about Scottish civilization? Yeah, story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I, I'm kind of intrigued by Ewan's kind of question: Has has the SNP overreached itself here? And I kind of think there is a an element, or there is a sense that this is perhaps a step too 
too far for for the SNP. And I, kind of one of the interest or kind of one of the striking things that how how badly what a bad piece of legislation it is in terms of kind of uh, kind of its legal premise and how clumsy it is and things like that. But I kind of think there's a sense that we we're in danger of to a degree fetishizing the bill in and of itself because I very much see the the bill as a kind of quite an extreme manifestation of the same tendency which uh, has resulted in Edinburgh University distancing itself from the Enlightenment philosopher David Hume because yeah. of his apparently uh, kind of uh, racist uh, views. So I kind of think there's a, a much more integral uh, kind of widespread element that, that, that kind of Jim's touching on. So the, the bill in of itself is very, very problematic, but uh, I kind of think if the bill falls, if the bill is repealed, or certainly if section two of the bill is is kind of undermined and repealed, uh, I, I still think these these themes uh, and the, these problems, particularly the attack on equality, particularly the attack on the ability of, of personal autonomy, the, the legacy of the, the Enlightenment, uh, and these issues will still shape the the trajectory. Certainly, I think of, of Scottish politics. Uh, for for the time to come, and uh, as as we know, these are, these are the kind of salient themes that that, that are dominating uh, kind of uh, certainly the the wider uh, Western Western discussion. So it may be the case that the the SNP has overreached the mark. However, given their relative dominance, and I'm sorry to say the the general apathy of, of the kind of Scottish electorate. And the, the the distinct lack of opposition to to the SNP, as Jim has noted in in, in the Scottish Parliament, uh, I it won't be the end of the SNP in no way. But I I, I kind of think that if if the bill falls, I, th these problems are still going to be there. The, the, these these themes are still going to be quite salient. And as we've seen, I think the the kind of the the attempt by a kind of intellectual class in, in Scotland to distance itself from, from the Scottish Enlightenment is is, is equally uh, as problematic as to what's contained, and it is born of the same uh, the same motivation, uh, a kind of distrust of uh, um, individuality, a distrust of autonomy, and a, and a uh, kind of a sort of year zero approach to um, to history. So I, I see it not simply in terms of the bill itself, but I think the, the, the trends that the bill exemplifies are much more pre prevalent and evident in, in Scottish culture and, and kind of British okay. culture more generally. Uh, we're going to go to Lawrence and then um, I'm going to go to, um, there's, there's a lot of names I can see that I know. Um, uh, I, I want to bring in uh, Madrid next. Where is he? Um, Alex Cameron will come in after Lawrence from Madrid and um, and I need everyone to keep it pretty short because we're running out of time. Lawrence. Hi, yes. Um, so I would just quickly like to drag us back to what John Cleese pointed out. Um, first, well, first of all, I just want to say, Jim, I hope I'm as articulate as you are uh, one day. Um, but what John was talking about is that it, it was one of the few things that we refuse to collectivise, which is good manners essentially, and, and a shared and mutual respect that one doesn't have the worst intent to one another. And that's a very intuitive uh, 
thing within people. It's very hard to legislate intuition. And one of the saddest things that comes with it, uh, having been a former creative myself, uh, hope to be hope to be able to create a space where I can be one again. Um, is that creativity is the is the casualty here as well. And what once one allows offence and 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 to collectivise victimhood and 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 to see offence as the victory in in the dialogue between us all, you you destroy communication. And I think I would then go to what Joanna was saying about language. And and I, in no uncertain terms would I say this is an absolute assault on our language and the way that we communicate in a way to build to divide us and my big fear is it may be actually the end game of capitalism that we've created the very demons that are going to destroy us i hope that's not true um and you know in terms of the legislation i i think the only thing one could ever even have the vaguest chance Putting this stuff through is by hook or by crook and hoodwinking everybody in. I think there's no way if you put this to the public debate properly, anyone would ever buy it for a second. End of. Great. Okay. Right. So Alex and then Marcus. Sure. Don't worry. I, I think Calton. I just wanted to um, draw attention to Calton's points. I think they've been amazing. This is not just about this bill. This is a broader um, and um, problem. Okay, Thank, thanks. We got we got that. We got that. Okay. Um, who God? Who did I say next? Marcus next. Go for it, Marcus. Uh, is there a combination here of like Scottish Presbyterianism wanting to control things, and um, our general sense that we are less racist than everyone else, and a third thing being that the Scottish government is only given so many powers, so the things that it has power over, it really wants to control. That's all. Okay. Right. Um, Alistair. And then Anne-Marie. Uh, thanks, Simon. Well, it's just a very quick question, really, um, relating to a problem that I'm coming up with a lot of the time, against a lot of the time just now, which is obviously we're in a moment just now where freedom is under attack in all sorts of areas. We've got the COVID coronavirus stuff where there's civil liberties being thrown out the window. We've got big tech companies uh, censoring people. We've got online harms bills and, and all the rest of it. So the hate speech stuff fits into a pattern of broader attacks on freedom. But one of the things that I think is common to, the, to, to all of these fronts just now is that people who argue for freedom are often seen, seen as selfish or just wanting to have their say to the, at the expense of other people, to not wanting to obey the restrictions of coronavirus because they're, they're pretty selfish. So it seems like we need to develop a, a response to this, which is uh, in a way to emphasize tolerance for people, to, to, to almost make the case for other people being able to do uh, what it is to, to exercise their freedom rather than look at it as something that's individual and all about me. And I just wonder if, if, if any of the speakers have got any advice and any thoughts on how best to go about doing that. Okay, after Anne-Marie, we're going to Jamie, then Jan. Thank you, guys. And can I just say thank you very much to Jim Sillers and John Cleese. It's, I'm amazed that I'm even in their esteemed company tonight. And if you haven't read those books that um, John mentioned, Families, How to Survive Them, and Life and How to Survive It, please do. They fundamentally changed how I thought in my early 20s. I just wanted to say, really, that... Um, for me, being an SNP member, this seems to go one step further. And I'm asking, does it really, does it actually covertly attempt to control or ascertain our right, you know, right thinking? 
And I'm just looking at the wider sort of, uh, in my work, we've been challenging the Scottish Government around drug deaths and the response so far has to be just to stonewall us, you know, ignore us. And I'm wondering if, if that's a potential strategy through until, you know, the May election, but also that I feel like language has been used. We're living in this topsy-turvy world where like Boris and Sunak are more left-wing than Starmer. And to me, it seems to be an argument around tyranny versus freedom. But I am relieved to hear the, the stats that you mentioned around, you know, 46% of, you know, the current SNP membership don't necessarily agree with this. And that brings me great hope. Um, and I'm, I'm just wondering if, you know, this current stonewalling that we see in Scotland, uh, if that is a, is it a political strategy? Does that happen when governments become too powerful? I'm naive to this, so I'd like to ask if that's, ask the panel what their thoughts are on that. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. You can see my unkempt uh, post-work look. Um, it's been really fascinating, folks, and really thanks so much um, for all you've said. Um, I suppose my question was um, on the back of what John Cleese said, and I'm probably particularly addressed towards Lawrence. Um, so the hate crime bill, you might not be aware, has specific provisions on uh, public performances of plays and theatre productions. And so under the bill, uh, abusive um, language in plays, which is thought to stir up hatred, would be criminalised. And uh, that's been something that's exercised actors and playwrights in Scotland because obviously plays portray all sorts of offensive and, and terrible things and you have racist characters and, um, you know, that's just part of, of the creative process. So would Lawrence like to say a little bit more about how he as an actor um, feels the bill could impact on, on plays and on the creative process and, and just respond to what John Cleese says a little bit more? Thank you. Um, yeah, I, I, I just wanted to talk about or to ask the speakers about, isn't it the case that the state today has changed from being seen as the servant of the people to more like a, that of a benign parent? And that's what's underpinning the, the, the notion that the way that the SNP seems to be taking um, this misguided idea that the left has had forever about how state intervention is the same as socialism. And this SNP and even Boris now seem to be taking this to the nth degree. The idea that adults are simply biologically mature children and that the state has the idea to intervene in our, in our private behaviour. And I think that that's, isn't that an indication of how we've seemed to have lost this idea of the enlightenment of, the, of citizens as, as something quite special, as, as, as free human beings, um, adult human beings. And, Today, we have a completely different conception of the state and that needs to be turned around and, and, and the state needs to return to being the servant of the people. I don't even think that it was for a very long period in history seen as the servant of the people. It's just this bleep, brief blip. Otherwise, it's more like we have the idea of a medieval monarch. And that's the situation that citizens seem to be in in relation to the state today as subjects with a apparently benign monarch in charge rather than a servant of the people. Yep. Thank, thanks, Jan. I'm, I'm reliably told that John Rowland is in actual fact Jenny Cunningham. Um, so we're going to go to John Rowland now. Just on, on the first section of the bill, I think what's 
terribly important to remember about these protected groups um, is that, of course, they are um, they're really of the state's choosing. You know, the state decides who these protected groups are going to be. And, and both in England and in Scotland, they've decided on this list of groups. And it, it's, it's very often the groups which have the most political influence, of course, who can become, uh, you know, state-sponsored uh, protected groups. And Carlton just hit the nail on the head when he made the point that this is all about inequality before the law. Just a very quick point though on this question of, is there such a thing as absolute freedom of speech? The, the thing is, I, I would agree that, that that should be your position, but of course there are areas of restricted speech. And Paul Coleman, who wrote a very, very good book on the sort of iniquitous influence of European um, hate speech laws on freedom of, of speech made the point that there is a very, very big difference between some of these sort of so-called areas of restricted speech. So he gives the example, for example, the distribution of child pornography or the uh, disclosure of state secrets um, or the dissemination of malicious um, falsehoods. You see, the, th the thing is about these areas is that they have withstood the, the, the test of time. They're very narrowly defined and they're very well defined. And the justification for restricting the speech must be utterly compelling against the presumption of free speech. And he says that this whole bill is completely different to, to those areas in the sense that it is extremely loosely worded. In fact, the European um, Commission on Human Rights agrees that it's completely impossible to really um, define free speech. But the, the whole point he, he really stresses is, is not only are they loosely worded, they're very arbitrarily enforced. They protect certain groups. But the other point he makes is that they're very, very rarely victims as such. They don't have to be a victim or even a victim group. Um, last point that I, I think is, is very important here is that the prosecution really relies um, very much on the focus on the so-called um, uh, perception of, of free hate. So it doesn't even matter whether there's a question of whether it's true or not, whether what's been said has some validity. Um, it's all focused on the perception. So the point is that this is bad, bad legislation from all points of view. But I think Carlton's point was really the crux of the matter, equality before the law. Thanks, Jenny. I'm, I'm, I'm going to 
just chop it there. I'm, I'm afraid there's three people left, but I think they've all spoken. So that, they'll just be coming back for their second time. I'm going to give each of the panelists one minute each just to try and sum up um, what their thoughts are. Good luck on that one, folks. Um, and then and then afterwards, we can continue after we've kind of uh, pulled the curtain down. We can people will stick around online if they want and we can continue chatting. But um, first of all, can we go to Jim for, you, for a minute, Jim? Yes, I think the most important thing for me that's come out of the discussion is what Carlton pointed to. That is the question of equality, but also um, the increasing tendency of authoritarianism on the SNP government. I, I would sum up this legislation is that the state is telling us only think within the limits we define and only speak the words we allow. That's a dead society. I, right, okay, very, very quickly. Um, there's obviously a lot to uh, kind of unpack here. So I'll, I'll, I'll just address, I'll, I'll try and address some of the points that, or the question that Alastair raised as to, well, what is, is there a way out, a way out of this? And I kind of, I think kind of the, the only way out of it is in a sense is to make the case for uh, trust that people are able to trust one another and come to solutions through their own kind of volition and through their own uh, kind of intersubjective relations that we have in, in ordinary life that we can actually create a set that we have more in common than actually this legislation and legislation like this or the kind of dominant culture would have us believe because I kind of think there is and it comes back very briefly to the protected characteristics uh, and I'll finish on this point. I think it's kind of, it's really ironic that uh, a law, a piece of legislation that demands that particular identities be treated equally in society are made unequal by the law, by the fact that they're protected. I think that kind of turns things the wrong way around in the sense that kind of, it's actually our common culture that makes us equal, uh, not the law and the kind of the legal intervention actually creates more uh, kind of division and uh, fragmentation. So I would make an argument that it's, we need to start trusting people and we need to start articulating uh, a common good and a common purpose in the relations and the relations between ordinary people outside of the realm of state intervention. Um, can I just start by thanking everybody? I really enjoyed this discussion. Uh, just very quickly to say to Jamie in response to uh, acting, um, very early on after I said what I had said, I was told by my representatives that they were uncomfortable to represent me further due to my racist thinking. And I then said to them, which particular bit of my racist thinking bothers you? And they failed to come up with a with a single example of it. Um, in response to Jan, uh, this idea of a benign parent that the state is, I don't agree. I think the state is, is, is wanting to be much more than that, a tyrannical parent. And I think we need to, we need to work very hard to teach our children not to hate, each, hate themselves for existing, which is what I think is, is beginning to happen in education. And then just to finish off, my, uh, you know, in terms of the fact that we're all looking for equality, Right. This is what we, we seek, and it's and it's the way that we we're going to stay the most cohesive that we can be. To just to say, bless you, prison, bless you for being in my life. For there, lying upon the rotting prison straw, I came to realise that the object of life is not prosperity as we are made to believe, 
but the maturity of the human soul. Excellent. Can, can we all uh, virtually uh, wave our elbows or whatever you meant to do on Zoom to thank our panel? Um, jazz hands, anything kind of do the COVID dance. So, so that's the end of the Scotland Salon for tonight. But if people are sticking around online, I'm happy to um, host uh, and, and allow people to continue chatting. The next Scotland Salon will be in November at some point. And what we're trying to do at that one is look at the impact of lockdown. We're going to look at the impact, the social impacts um, and the, the mental health impacts of the lockdown itself, not in terms of uh, defeating the, the disease that's attacking us, but um, what the other impacts of, of, of it have been. Um, and we'll, tr we'll try and try and have a discussion, host a discussion around that. We've got a couple of speakers thinking about it already, but I'll, I'm gonna uh, try and arrange something else as well. So that, that will happen later on in November, and then we'll have a break until after the new year. Celebrations as you have to, as we all celebrate on the Zoom call, um, drinking a pint of beer in our offices um, and uh, not being able to kiss anybody on Princess Street. Okay, so thanks very much. Um,